Let's pray together, please. Father in heaven, thank you for giving us the words of eternal life. Thank you that when your son came into the world, he answered that wonderful question, Lord, teach us to pray, and gave us the Lord's prayer, gave us really the the disciples' prayer, what all disciples are supposed to follow when they bow their heads to pray. May we learn from what Jesus taught us here, and may what he taught affect everything that we ask for in prayer every day for the rest of our lives. We ask in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Please take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 11. Continuing on to the third petition of the Lord's Prayer, the the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples, Luke chapter 11. I'll go ahead and read the the whole prayer in Luke 11. Obviously, we're we're reading a petition that doesn't occur in this version of the prayer, but uh, we're we're getting it from Matthew 6's version, but we're in the Gospel of Luke, so I'm going to go ahead and read Luke 11, 1 through It happened that while Jesus was praying in a certain place after he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John also taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, give us each day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves also forgive everyone who is indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation. May God bless the reading of his holy word. In studying the Lord's Prayer, everyone recognizes that you need to harmonize the synoptic Gospels, and you look at Matthew chapter 6, and that's where you have the fuller version of the Lord's Prayer, and and this morning we're looking at the third petition. I wanted to begin by reading to you the larger catechism, question 192, what do we pray for in the third petition? In the third petition, which is, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven, acknowledging that by nature... We and all men are not only utterly unable and unwilling to know and do the will of God, but prone to rebel against his word, to repine, that means complain, and murmur against his providence, and wholly inclined to do the will of the flesh and of the devil. We pray that God would, by his spirit, take away from ourselves and others all blindness, weakness, indisposedness, and perverseness of heart. And by his grace, make us willing and able to know, do, and submit to his will in all things with the like humility, cheerfulness, faithfulness, diligence, zeal, sincerity, and constancy as the angels do in heaven. Thus far in studying the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples, we have seen that when we pray, the worship of God is always first. Hallowed be your name, he says. When you pray, the first thing you do is worship God. Prayer is an act of worship, first and foremost, and that's why we don't pray to anyone other than God. In the inspired scripture, you will find no prayers to Mary or to saints or to ancestors or to anyone because prayer is a most solemn act of worship. And by this, we are taught to sanctify and give praise and adoration to the name of God. Hallowed be your name. Jesus taught his disciples, every single time you pray, you are to worship God first. God is holy and beautiful, glorious, all-wise, all-powerful, and we see a glimpse of this and the wonders of creation that surround us every day. We also see the greatness of God displayed in his mercy, his patience, and his love toward his people, and that he sent his own son to take the full divine justice due to us for our sin at the cross, where he died, and in his achieving of a perfect righteousness, which is imputed to our account once for all in our justification. 
In short, there is no end to all that we must hallow and sanctify the name of God for. You could spend the rest of your life on the first petition if you just apply your mind to it. An eternity of praise and heavenly glory after the second coming of Christ will not exhaust the reasons that we will have to praise God. Be sure that when you bow your head to address him, that your own personal worship of his holy name is priority number one. And then we are to pray, your kingdom come. In this petition, we pray for the destruction of the strongholds of Satan and that Christ's kingly reign would subdue the hearts of every human being in Adam's fallen race on earth. And we looked at numerous passages from the Psalms last Sunday showing that God teaches his people in the very worship songs that he gave them to pray for the salvation of all the peoples, nations, and kings of the earth. Even in the songs that the people of Israel sang to God, even the songs that we sing to God, we're praying that God would cause all the nations, all the peoples of the earth, to praise the Lord. Let the nations be glad. Let all the kings of the earth worship God. Let his kingdom go forth in the world. That's so much more important than my stresses and problems and burdens that I bring to God every Sunday. Those psalms also say in passage after passage that it is going to happen. All the nations will praise the Lord. God told Abram in Genesis 12 that in him all the families of the earth would be blessed. And Paul, directed by the Holy Spirit, he penned the promise that if the cutting off of Jews at the time of Christ meant the incoming of large numbers of Gentiles... What is it going to mean for the Gentiles when that future generation of Israel is entirely saved? If their cutting off meant the salvation of multitudes of Gentiles, what's going to happen to the world when the fullness of the Jews are brought in? Our spiritual forefathers saw that in Romans chapter 11, and they added in their answer to the question, what does it mean when we pray for God's kingdom to come? We are praying that God would call the Jews, and that he would bring in the fullness of the Gentiles. We also briefly discussed the devastation to Christianity in our country because of its pessimistic eschatology. The worse things get, the more excited people are about what? The rapture. We're getting out of here sooner. Great. The worse it gets, the happier we are. That's insane. Along that idea, please listen very carefully to my next sentence. Listen, please. The petition of the disciples' prayer that we're considering this morning, if every Christian in America really understood it, it would cause all of them to weep bitter and sorrowful tears at the moral collapse of our society and at the doctrinal apostasy of the church. When we say, Lord, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we're asking that righteousness would reign here, that we would see wickedness disappear. I'd like to suggest to you that the notion that we should rejoice at how bad things are because we're going to get raptured out of here sooner, that's the opposite of what Jesus is teaching us to pray for, isn't it? Every single prayer, every time we pray this petition, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The more wickedness we see on earth, that's not God's will being done on earth as it is in heaven. Contrary to the excitement some pessimistic Christians seem to have at the debauchery and the unrest of our country because it supposedly signals the end of all things, the psalmist gave us the true heart of the Holy Spirit and the true heart of a Christian. 
Psalm 119, verse 136. Psalm 119, 136. Mark it, star it, highlight it in your Bible. Rivers of water run down from my eyes because men do not keep your law. Not, yay, we're getting raptured sooner. Rivers of water run down my eyes because men don't keep God's law. There's a real sense, biblically speaking, that no true believer could ever really actually truly rejoice at lawlessness. It's completely contrary to the new heart that God gave us. No true child of God looks at the lives that are ruined and destroyed and discarded and hurt by sin and really rejoice at such a thing. The Holy Spirit puts it into the heart of His beloved and blood-purchased children to love truth, not falsehood. To love beauty, not ugliness. To rejoice at righteousness, not wickedness. To pray that God's revealed will would be loved and obeyed and rejoiced in. And that God's will would be done in heaven by angels and be done the same way here on earth by people, by saints. That what is in heaven would come down to earth. This petition of the Lord's Prayer is the child of God asking that God's will, His revealed will, not His secret providence or His secret decree, but His revealed will in the form of His law would be embraced and obeyed by ourselves and all of mankind on earth. You see, there's a a logical progression of thought here in the outline of the prayer that Jesus gave His disciples. Praise and hallow the name of God first. In praying that petition, you pray that God's name would be hallowed by us and by everyone else in the whole world, by all men everywhere. Then we pray for God's kingdom to advance in the world through the gospel being proclaimed and repentance and faith being granted to people. And then we pray that God's will would be done on earth as that kingdom advances. We want his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. You see, in heaven, among the angels, among the redeemed believers, there is no disobedience. There is no grumbling in heaven. There's no complaining. There's no frustration with God's providence. No sin, no depression, no anxiety. There's nothing but joy at all times. In our very short existence here before we die and enter into our eternal existence, we are surrounded by disobedience without and much disobedience still within our own hearts. We pray for God's will to be done by us too. Spiritual poverty, mourning, hungering and thirsting for righteousness. This is where we live as believers, isn't it? You feel that sense of poverty, that mourning, that hungering for righteousness. And therefore we pray for God's holy, righteous, just and good revealed will to be done by humanity on earth the way it is done in heaven. So we don't see unborn babies being killed. So we don't see things like homosexuality running rampant in the streets. We want to see righteousness. We want to see human flourishing. People being happy. People using their gifts to glorify God. Why must we pray for this? Why do we have to pray for this? Why did Jesus teach us? Every time you pray, you need to pray that God's will will be done on earth the same way it's done in heaven. Because by nature, we and all men are, as the catechism said, utterly unable and unwilling to know and do the will of God, but prone to rebel against his word, to complain and grumble against his providence, and wholly inclined to do the will of the flesh and of the devil. How many of you noticed when you first became a Christian that James 1 verse 3 didn't become an instant reality, and you considered it pure joy, every trial that you ever faced? It took a long time, or it's still taking a long time to get to that point. Another opportunity to grow. How exciting. Therefore, we with the psalmist, we pray what? God, help us 
Help us. Help your will to be done on earth in us, in our hearts, in our attitudes, our responses to trials, the way that it is in heaven. We pray for Psalm 119, verses 33 to 37. Listen to this block of text. Here's the prayer in, in a wider format. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I will keep it to the end. Give me understanding, and I shall keep your law. Indeed, I shall observe it with my whole heart. Make me walk in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to covetousness. Turn away my eyes from looking at worthless things and revive me in your way. Why is the psalmist saying that? Because he knows he is not inclined to do any of that. By nature, we're inclined to just the opposite. And that's why he's saying, Lord, make me do this. Give me a desire. Give me these things. Incline my heart to your testimony. Incline me not to be covetous. Incline me to be satisfied in you. Turn away my eyes from looking at worthless things and revive me in your way. When we consider the will of God, there's a very important distinction that we need to make in our reasoning and in our thinking. God has a secret will. He has a decree or a plan whereby for his own glory, he foreordains whatever comes to pass in this world. And then he has his revealed will. Now, both of those wills are laid out for us in Deuteronomy 29, 29. It's an easy passage to remember because the numbers are the same. Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. You hear the two wills there? God has a secret will. The secret things belong to him. The things that are revealed, they belong to us and to our children so that we may obey the words of this law. Paul also describes it, Ephesians 3.11, his eternal plan, his decree. He says, according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord, what we're praying for when we ask God, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, is not asking that God would accomplish his secret plan or his secret decree. John Calvin said about this, quote, Here is not a question of his secret will by which he controls all things and directs them to their end, but here God's other will is to be noted, namely that to which voluntary obedience corresponds. And for that reason, heaven is is by name compared to earth for the angels, as is said in the psalm, willingly obey God and are intent upon carrying out his commands. Another author I read this week said, Wherefore it were but folly for us to pray to have it fulfilled, namely his secret will, his secret plan. I mean, saying, God, carry out your decreed secret plan you carried out from the beginning, from before the foundation of the world. Well, of course he's going to do that. God's decree is going to take place no matter what, because he's the sovereign king of the universe. This is his creation. He does whatever pleases him. What we're being asked to pray in this petition, we're asking that God's revealed will, his law, would be obeyed by ourselves and the whole world, such that righteousness reigns instead of wickedness. When a person is redeemed and born again, their heart is changed. The seat of their highest affection moves from self and sin to Christ and righteousness. And we will become like Lot if we live in a debauched society like the one we live in today. We will become like Lot, 2 Peter 2.8. For that righteous man, Lot, dwelling among them there in Sodom and Gomorrah, it says he tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. What is it about seeing and hearing lawless deeds that torments the souls of believers? Lawlessness is contrary to the character of our new first love. God, 
That's why it torments us. That's why it bothers us. It also burdens us because we know that those lost souls that are engaged in such wickedness, all they're doing is piling up more and more wrath from God for those very acts of lawlessness in which they live. We have a burden. We want to see them saved and delivered from that. Believers know that God's wrath is going to be unleashed one day on the world on the day of judgment. And it, it troubles us to see how great that wrath will be, to see all that lawlessness. That's why we pray, God, rid the world of all of it. Rid, rid the world of all the innocent bloodshed. Rid, rid the world of sexual perversion and filth. Rid, rid the world of, of marital discord. Rid, rid the world of all that stuff so that righteousness will reign. And praise be to Christ, we've been saved from that coming righteous wrath of God by the cross work of Christ. Because a lot of that wrath would come against us, wouldn't it? Christ, our Passover lamb, our covenant surety, our substitute, our conqueror of death. We're tormented by seeing and hearing the, the lawless deeds of unbelievers, just like Lot was. And we're also tormented by seeing the lawlessness that often prevails in here. Aren't you tormented by the lawlessness that often goes on in your own mind, your own heart, with your own hands, your own feet? your own actions. We as Christ followers who have such a strong desire to do good in our inner man, we often cry out with Paul in Romans 7, 24, O wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then the wonderful consolation that we are still forgiven, still justified, still adopted. We still have the guarantee of eternal life. Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Take heart, struggling Christian. Christians struggling with doubt, struggling with sin, struggling for assurance. There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. When we pray, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We are acknowledging that by nature, we and all men are not only utterly unable and unwilling to know and do the will of God, but that all of us are prone to rebel against his word, to complain to be discontent against God's providence, and we are inclined by our sinful natures to commit sin and to align ourselves with Satan. The principle of lawlessness, it exists even in the heart of the godliest of Christians. The godliest of believers through all the ages. Consider King David. The incredible life of godliness and love. A man described as a a man after my own heart, God called him. A man of great piety and love and devotion along with the commission of multiple homicides and adultery. It's an illustration that ought to serve as a grave warning. No sin is above us at any time. In the moment that we lose that healthy sense of respect for the sinful nature that is ours, we are prone, we are in danger. There are no sins that are beneath us or out of the realm of possibility for us, dear ones. A few wrong decisions... A few wrong steps, a few wrong thoughts, a few compromises, life can take a real different turn. And Jesus taught us to pray that God's will, his righteous and good laws, which have our best in mind always, that they would be joyfully obeyed by ourselves and others because, listen, we are not up to the challenge before us. Jesus told his disciples, every time you pray, I want you to pray that my will would be done on earth as it is in heaven, including in your own life. Because you are prone to walk away from me. You are prone to be a fool. You're prone to believe the lies of culture. The sin that is still in us can easily overrun us without the help of Christ day in and day out. And I will say that I don't understand how professing Christians can fail to read the word of God every day. Fail to pray every day. 
fail to be at church to worship with and fellowship with God's people unless they are providentially hindered from doing so. We are not strong enough to stand on our own. We need the constant daily help of our Heavenly Father, and we need each other. Without all the parts of the body present, the body of Christ, the church, is missing something, and someone essential to the functioning of that body. God providentially puts each part in the body as He pleases for the benefit of all. The spiritual gifts that God has uniquely given every person here, whether that person tends to be visible or invisible, they are all essential to the well-being of everyone else. 1 Corinthians 12, 7, Paul said, But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, to another the word of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, and to another the effecting of miracles, to another prophecy, to another distinguishing of spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually just as he wills. For even as the body is one and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one Spirit. And you know that passage goes on to say, The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. The ear cannot say to the foot, I don't need you. And they can't say that back to each other either. You who think you're not important to this church, you are essential to this church. Essential to the life of this church. To its well-being. To to making sure that your prayers are heard by God for your brothers and sisters so that the will of God is done here as it is in heaven. It's always a big deal when the body is missing some of its parts. I read an illustration in an old Puritan book a long time ago that brought this home to me. This pastor of a church had noticed that a member of his church had become more and more sporadic in their attendance upon public worship, and this individual did not attend any of the other activities that the church did either. They didn't take part in Bible studies, they didn't come to conferences or Wednesday night, anything. Slowly but surely, this individual seemed to be losing their desire to walk closely with Christ, and the pastor decided to do a cold call and visit the person's house one evening. And he rang the doorbell, and nobody answered. And he noticed the smell of an outdoor fire, and looked around and saw the man sitting by a bench, uh, on a bench by a small fire in his backyard. And without saying a word, the minister sat down by the man and looked at the fire with him. And the man didn't look up or say a word to his pastor, and they sat in silence for a few minutes. And the pastor took the steel tongs that were sitting by the fire and he picked up a coal from the fire and moved it a couple of feet away from the fire. And the coal burned for a few seconds and then it ceased to be burning and it just sat there dead. And they both stared at the dead coal for a minute. And then the pastor took the tongs and picked up the coal and put it back over by the fire and it immediately lit right back up. And the man looked at his pastor and said, I see now, thanks for coming by. The pastor prayed for the man and then left, and the man never missed church again. It was a vital part of that church for the rest of his life. Where are those coals? Where are those coals? You move away from the other coals, you're going to burn out. You're just going to be sitting there, and there's, there's not going to be any fire in you. Not only do we need close proximity to our brothers and sisters in the family of God, we need their prayers for us to have the strength to resist sin, to obey God's commands, and to glorify Christ in our callings and our vocations. Folks, listen. 
Jesus teaching us to pray, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It demonstrates this fact. It demonstrates this. We're not up to the task. You and I cannot be godly. We cannot be obedient. The will of God is not going to be done by us without the help of God and without the help of our churches. We are not lone rangers. Forget American rugged individualism. We were created by God to live in community. We were created for community with Christ too. And we need his help every day in our irreconcilable war with sin, with temptation, and with the evil that is around us. We need his church so we have other people who are also praying that God's will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. We need the people of God so we know that we're not alone in the world. Isn't it helpful to you just to see someone else on Sunday? You know this person has the same struggles. This person wants to be godly like I do. You aren't the only one struggling with sin. You're not the only one struggling with assurance of your salvation. You're not the only one fighting depression, anxiety, and doubt. You're not the only one who's afraid that if people really knew you, they wouldn't love you. You're not the only one in these struggles. We have a common heavenly father who loves us so much. He sent his son to suffer and die and to free us from guilt, to give us a legal guarantee of eternal life and to set us free from fear, from doubt, from slavery to sin. But the inclination still exists in all of us towards lawlessness, towards faithlessness, toward rebellion, towards sin, and to believe lies. Paul said in Romans 7.22, I delight in the law of God according to my inward man, but I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. Do you see what he's saying? I delight in the law of God. I delight in the law of God. But I also see this other law. I also see this other principle, this principle of disobedience, bringing me into captivity. The world, the sinful nature that's still in us, and Satan, that is a formidable, unholy trinity of opposition, dear ones. Without the help of God, when we pray and petition with him, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we are often not going to win that war. You need his help. You may think you're strong. Paul, Paul addressed that. He said, if any of you thinks he stands, take heed, lest he fall. Without the friendship and fellowship of God's people, we're not often going to win that day in and day out war. Without asking God for help, we're not often going to win that day in and day out war. Consider the following not able passages. When I say not able, I mean it's a very distinct Greek phrase. I remember going through this years ago. Not able. Okay, it's not that, you know, man is just kind of sick and he just doesn't, doesn't seem to really want to do this. It's he can't do it. He's not able to do what God asks. Listen, 1 Corinthians 2, 14. The natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God for they are foolishness to him, nor is he able to know them because they are spiritually discerned. He can't understand those things. But he who is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is rightly judged by no one. Romans 8, 7, another key passage. Because the carnal mind, the unbelieving mind, is hostile to God. It is enmity against God. It is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed is it able to be so. When the unbeliever considers the law of God and its demands upon them, they scoff and they wonder, why should I restrain my lusts and what I want to do? Why is God such a cosmic killjoy? Why can't I do what I want when I want as long as it doesn't hurt anybody? 
And that word translated enmity there in Greek is the term ekthra. It means to live in opposition to, to be hostile to, to have animosity and hatred for. It's the very same Greek word used in Genesis 3.15. Enmity I will put between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. The unbeliever is hostile to God. You see, even as redeemed believers, there's still some of that hostility there at times, even in us. When God approaches, the unbeliever wants to run and hide. If they can't run and hide and they're confronted with their sin and with Christ's call to repentance, they often do as Stephen's murderers did. In Acts 7.54, the text of Scripture says, When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart and they gnashed at him with their teeth. You hear that? They grit their teeth. They hated what he said so much. In verse 57, Then they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears, and ran at him with one accord, and they cast him out of the city and stoned him. So picture this. Here, here's the reaction of the non-believer to the gospel and to the law of God. They gnashed at him with their teeth. They plugged their ears and screamed. What does that remind you of? A child having a temper tantrum, perhaps? You see, we're all like Adam and Eve doing what? Hiding behind trees in the garden? I don't want anything to do with him. Get away from me. And if we're pulled out from behind the tree, gnash your teeth, plug your ears, and yell. That hostility is what beats in the heart of every unregenerate person. Even the nicest people you know, when confronted with their sin and the exclusive claims of Christ, when they're told what Jesus said in John 8, 24, if you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. All of a sudden, that sweet, gentle, nice, soft-spoken person is not so sweet, gentle, nice, and soft-spoken anymore. There is, as God's word says, the positive existence of real not imagined, but real hostility. A real violent attitude toward God and God's right to command men and to threaten them with eternal punishment and to require that they live in submission to him. You know, the irony with the will of God and praying, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The irony of us having to pray that, of course, is that unbelievers proclaim their freedom to the world while they live as helpless slaves of sin. And it is the children of God alone who know what true freedom is living happily in the safe and blessed confines of the law of God. Another passage from the Psalms, listen to it. Psalm 119, verse 32, captures this perfectly. Psalm 119, 32. I run in the path of your commands, for you have set my heart free. You hear that? When we pray for God's will to be done on earth and as it is in heaven, we're praying for the happiness and for the flourishing of ourselves and everyone around us. The heart of God's people breaks to see people being self-destructive, people refusing to obey God, people choosing bondage, sadness, heartache, and evil, instead of the freedom, joy, happiness, and peace that God offers to them. There's nothing more completely irrational than sin, when you think about it. Why are we so prone to self-destruction? Why, even as Christians, are the seeds of folly and discontentment and recklessness still alive in our hearts? Why? God commands us to have joy in knowing and following and obeying him. And we refuse. We want pain instead. I want sadness. I prefer the pig slop to the fatted calf. I sell away my eternal happiness for the passing pleasures of sin like Esau. I want a little bowl of porridge, of stew, than my birthright. 
Our eyes turn so easily from the truth to error. Our minds and our hearts are so prone to wander away from God so easily with very little effort or resistance from us. We prefer turmoil to peace. No, no, no. I don't want peace. I want to live in turmoil. I prefer to have bags under my eyes and to be buried under worry than simply trust that our sovereign king holds all those troubles in the palm of his infinite, eternal, and unchangeable hands. The sovereign creator of all has condescended to trouble himself, to take upon himself a human nature, to be born of a woman, to be made under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, that we would receive the adoption as sons and daughters of God with all the rights and privileges that brothers and sisters of Christ receive. We have a right to a private audience with God. That is such an incredible thing to consider. A captive audience with God who is ready to listen to your burdens and your concerns, who invites you and the world to cast those concerns at his feet and let him carry them. I've mentioned to you all many times, my father, he's still, even though he's on kidney dialysis, he sleeps better than any human being I've ever known. He told me again and again when I was a kid, son, I don't worry, I pray. I don't worry, I pray. Give it to the Lord, he's up all night every night anyway. We're wholly inclined to do the will of our sinful nature and of the devil. Do you believe that? When that catechism says that, that's based on scores of passages. We're inclined to do the will of our sinful nature and the devil. And therefore, our gracious and loving Lord taught us always to pray and not lose heart. And every single time you pray, petition your heavenly Father, whose listening ears are eager and ready to hear from you as one of his blood-bought children to petition him, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In heaven, there is no worry. In heaven, there are no tears. In heaven, there is no complaining, no grumbling, no sleeplessness, no broken hearts, no shattered dreams, There is God, and in Him there is joy, day and night, world without end. There is no sin, no disobedience, no desire for self-destruction. Jesus, in teaching this petition to us, is asking us to ask of our Father for a bit of heaven on earth. God, give us heaven on earth. The Puritan writer Thomas Brooks, one one of the best Puritans you could ever read, he wrote a book on assurance. You know what the title of that book is? Heaven on Earth. He's inviting you. You can have... A taste of heaven here. Just trust me. Pray to me. Give all your concerns and burdens to me. I will take care of all of them. Let God's law, that loving law, that shows men and women how to be happy and blessed in all they do, let that reign supreme on the earth, Lord. So the people are happy, so they flourish. Lord, take away from ourselves and others blindness and weakness and indisposedness and perverseness of heart. Lord, make us willing by your grace to know, to do, and submit to your will in all things with the like humility, cheerfulness, faithfulness, diligence, zeal, sincerity, and constancy as the angels do in heaven. This glorious prayer that Jesus taught his disciples and therefore taught us is telling us, ask God to bring heaven to earth in us and to those around us. Ask God to cause his glorious name to be sanctified and hallowed the world over. Ask God to plunder Satan's house and to make his kingdom advance to every nation and every human being on earth. Ask God to break our foolish attachments to sin and to make rebellion against him cease in us and others. Ask God to let righteousness reign in our hearts and in the hearts of all humankind in the world. Ask God to take away our blindness and our weakness. Ask God to cause our hearts to long for Christ, not sin. 
Ask God to make the words of that hymn resonate in our beings. Remember this hymn? Oh, to grace, how great a debtor daily I am constrained to be. Let that grace now, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, O taken, seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. God has done us nothing but good, dear congregation. I hope all of us know that. Whatever's gone on in your life, whatever path you've taken to get to this moment right here, God has done nothing but good to you your whole life. Does that thought come crashing into your mind when you sin? We must consider how truly blessed we are to know the true gospel, to be able to understand the Bible because Christ lives in our hearts, to be part of a Christian church that desires to worship God purely and biblically and to have each other. God showers blessing upon blessing and still, still we find things to complain about. Still we find things to grumble about. When Israel wandered in the wilderness after the exodus, God miraculously provided for them with manna from heaven and water from a rock. Miracles all day, every day kept them alive. But they still found something to complain about. Numbers 14.1 So all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried and the people wept that night and all the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron and the whole congregation said to them, if only we had died in the land of Egypt or if only we had died in this wilderness. It is incredible to think of what these people had seen. The unending stream of miracles wrought by the hand of God that sustained their lives. And yet they wanted more than anything, one of two things, to go back to Egypt to slavery or to die right there in the wilderness. There's a picture of mankind right there. God's tender mercies surround us. God's hand guides us and protects us. God's grace closes in around us. Christ's love is demonstrated in his death in our behalf to save us. But we still whine and complain and murmur and want something else. And don't trust that he really is sovereign over the meticulous details of our existence, of our lives, of our troubles. The only reason we complain, the only reason we murmur, the only reason we're still so fascinated with our besetting sins is the presence of what Paul called the law of sin at work in my members. So disgusted was Paul, and all believers for that matter, with this law of sin, this principle of unrighteousness that's still at work in us, that he even tries to, in a sense, distance himself from it. In Romans 7.15, What I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. If then... I do what I will not to do. I agree with the law that it is good. But now it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. He's distancing himself from it. I hate that thing that's still in me. It's no longer me. It's not the real me. The me who's redeemed and justified and born again, adopted into God's family. The one who loves God and delights in his law. No, it's this principle of lawlessness. This law of sin that's still there. Curses be upon it. Romans 7.22, as I just read earlier, in my inner being, I delight in God's law. I want to do the will of God, but I don't see the power to do it. I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind, bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. Every Christian sees that same law, that same principle, that same lawless tendency, that same foolish interest in evil. That lawlessness is at war with us. Paul summarized it in one verse in Galatians 5.17. For the flesh lusts against the spirit, the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another so that you do not do the things that you wish. It was the great Augustine of Hippo who said long ago, 
All that is good in me is of God, and the rest is my fault. We are saved and born again, but we're still weak. We're still weak. We all are. Prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Moses was held up as a great man of faith because he, he turned his back on the passing pleasures of sin because with the eyes of faith he saw the, the eternal reward. And he, he saw the greatness of knowing God and serving God and being identified with God's people. And he, he saw the reproach of Christ as greater riches than the riches of Egypt. It says in Hebrews eleven twenty four and following. Just remember, that's the same man that killed an Egyptian and buried him with his bare hands in the Egyptian sand. This is also the same man who directly disobeyed God and struck the rock instead of speaking to it and was thus not allowed to enter the promised land. Remember Jesus' disciples at Jesus' greatest hour of need in the Garden of Gethsemane? They were sleeping when he asked them, watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. I mean, when the incarnate Son of God tells you, watch and pray lest you enter into temptation, you need to watch and pray. And there's a picture of the entire Christian life how easily we stop watching and stop praying. We sleep when we should watch. We worry when we should pray. We skip reading God's word. And we ought to memorize it every day. Jesus told those weary, sad, sleepy disciples two sentences we all ought to weigh very carefully in our minds every single day that we live in this world. Jesus was in the depths of sadness and trouble. He was considering the cross work itself that was coming the next day, that terrible anticipation of his father's righteous justice dropping upon him in all of its unrestrained fury at the cross, and he's sweating drops of blood, and, and we know from the Mark 14, 32 and following, he was continually falling upon the ground. He was not able to stand. It's a pretty remarkable scene. It's a, it's a soul-stirring thing to consider. He lost the strength to stand up, and he's pouring his heart out and he, he's experiencing mental and physical trauma that, the likes of which is likely indescribable with human language and Matthew records the scene in Matthew 26 39 listen he went a little farther and fell on his face and prayed saying oh my father if it's possible let this cup pass for me nevertheless not as I will but as you will and then he came to the disciples and found them asleep said to Peter, what? Could you not watch with me one hour? Listen to these two sentences carefully. Watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. That's why Jesus taught his disciples, every single time you pray, you need to pray, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Because if God doesn't make it happen, if he doesn't help us to do it, we're not going to do it. Verse 42, again, a second time, he went away and prayed, saying, Oh, my father, if this cup cannot pass away from me unless I drink it, your will be done. And he came and found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. So he left them, went away again, and prayed the third time, saying the same words. Then he came to his disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of of sinners. Dear congregation, myself, remember his words. He spoke them out of love, just as he spoke every word that ever came from his holy mouth. Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Don't you understand what he means? You start out the week, you start out the day, you start out Monday with the best of intentions. The best of intentions. I want to change the world for the Lord. 
I want to do this and this and this. And the flesh is weak and you get distracted and you don't follow through and you sin in these ways. If any part of us believes that we are up to the tasks before us on any given day, let Jesus' direct statement be an end of such presumption. The temptations of every day, we are no match for them without Christ. The challenge of being content every day, we are not up to that challenge without Christ. The law of sin at work in our members, that weakness of our flesh, we are no match for it without Christ. If the will of God is to be done on earth as it is in heaven, it will only happen as we petition God to make it happen. And thankfully, the blood of Christ covers even our failure to ask that his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Nevertheless, let us always remember to petition God that he would, by his grace, make us able and willing to know, obey, and submit to his will in all things as the angels do in heaven. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that although Jesus asked three times that he received his answer the following day when he was nailed to that cross and he drank every last drop of that cup, that bitter terrifying cup of wrath he tasted all of it he drank it dry so that we would never have to so that our failure to pray in the way you've taught us to pray that too would be forgiven thank you for being so gracious so loving so patient toward us we pray that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven that what happens in heaven would come down to earth in us that there would be a readiness and a joy in our obedience to you that we would put aside our foolish and earthly ambitions and strive for more godliness because you are worthy that we do so. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for your forgiveness. And may we live for you every moment while we yet live this short time in this world. In Jesus' name, amen.